Hello, and welcome to Field Notes, the weekly podcast of the Military Fellowship Center in Jacksonville, North Carolina, serving Marines stationed at Cap Lejeune and surrounding areas. Military Fellowship Center is a ministry of Military Evangelism Incorporated. Our speaker and host for the program is Dave Mason, the General Director of Military Evangelism and the Field Director at Jacksonville. Visit us on the web at militaryfellowshipministry.com or email us at militaryfellowshipctr at gmail.com. Now, here's Dave Mason. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tonight. I have seven pages of notes on this. Um, We're not going to get through all that tonight, so I have printed them out. After we're done, you can have a copy if you want. Um, If I give them to you now, you'll just read it and not pay attention. Correct? Yeah, it's the truth. You know it. Do you want to go back to work? Hey, before we get started, though... I want to ask, does anybody here not have one of our Bible sticks? I don't. Okay. All right. You're going to get this, okay? We got this in the mail today, and it's from Emmanuel Church in Egg Harbor, New Jersey. They're one of our uh, biggest supporting churches, and it's from the third and fourth grade Sunday school class. And they their class gets points for completing their papers in class, saying their memory verses, bringing their Bible, and when they get to so many points, they get to send a Bible stick to a service member. That's their prize for, for getting all their points. They get to send a Bible stick to a service member. So they asked that we please give this to a Marine that could use it. And so inside, there is the Bible stick, but there's also a little card from the third and fourth grade class. Uh, from Oh, Tommy Peterson, that's the pastor's son, and Bailey and David. Um, and there's little notes in there from them, so... Uh, Ethan, you get this. I'll let them know that you got it. So I just thought that was a really cool little thing. I love when the kids get involved in missions, you know. That really means a lot to me. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're supposed to get into 1 Timothy tonight because that's where you're at in your reading. You should have been finishing up 2 Timothy today, I think. Finishing up 1 Timothy today. And um, But I I wanted to, I I didn't want to skip over 1 Thessalonians. You don't get a lot of chance to talk about this when you do what I do now, um, and um, when I go to churches and preach, you know, it's usually they're asking me to preach on a specific subject or on missions in general and things like that, so I don't get the chances I had as a pastor to preach on the second coming of Christ and to talk about the rapture of the church, which is my favorite subject, uh, just it's what, I, it's what I live for to preach, and uh, the four verses that we're going to zone in on tonight uh, verses 15 through 18 are kind of like my point man in my spiritual walk. Um, they're like my, my uh, designated hitter, you know, in the ball game of my life. It, it's, it's what I go to when I get really down in the dumps, when, I, when I'm fighting depression. And believe it or not, I do fight depression on occasion, just like all of you. Um, you know, we all have what Winston Churchill called the black dog on occasion, right? And that dog comes after us and tries to destroy us and uh, you know, and we, we have to fight that. And so whenever I'm feeling dragging, or whenever, whenever I feel like I'm uninspired or just dull about life, I go here and I read these verses. And because to me, verses 15 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4 are the most exciting promise uh, ever given to the church. You know, that Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins, 
was buried and rose again for our, for our justification and our redemption. Jesus, who ascended into the heavens, is coming back just for us. There are two stages to the return of the Lord. He will physically return to the earth at the end of the tribulation, step foot on the Mount of Olives, split it in two. Um, but before that, seven years before that happens, he's coming in the clouds to take the church, to call us who are alive and remain back uh, up to our home. And uh, to me, this, the rapture of the church is a foundational doctrine. Um, a lot of people today denounce it. They don't, they, just, they don't believe in the rapture. They think that there's just a general second coming of Christ. Um, but I think the Bible is really clear um, that the rapture is a prophecy that will come to pass. So let's talk about that tonight. How, what, who's going to go? Who's going to be involved in it? When's it going to happen? And who's going to be affected by it? Um, but let's start up. Let's start back in verse thirteen tonight. Uh, Paul says, "But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep." I remember when when the New Testament calls a Christian asleep. That is a Christian who's died before the return of Christ, because what do sleeping people always do at some point? Wake up. They wake up and when. If you're a Christian and you die in the faith, your body is just asleep for a period of time. So at some point, that body's going to come back to life. Christ is going to reunite your soul and spirit with your body. I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who are asleep, that you do not sorrow, even as those that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So here's this promise, that when Jesus comes back, those that have already died and their souls have gone to heaven, Jesus is bringing them back with him at the second coming, at the rapture of the church, so that their bodies can be resurrected and their souls and spirits can be reunited, they can be trinity again. Okay? Here it is, verse 15. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede those which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be, you should underline, circle, highlight those words, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another. With these words. Father God, thank you for the night. And for everybody here, our special guests from Word of Life and just, Lord, just the, the sweet fellowship we've already had. Help us now to understand your word. In Christ's name, amen. So, Paul says, plain and simple, when Jesus comes back, the first thing that's going to happen is the dead are going to rise. The dead are going to rise. And, you know, he says, the, those that are alive will not prevent. Um, in the Greek, that means to anticipate, to be before. And the sentence structure in the Greek suggests that the living don't have any advantage over the dead at the second coming. Um, we hope to be alive when Christ comes back, but the dead in Christ will have just as good a vantage point. You know, they, they'll, have be every, they'll have every bit of spectacular experience as we will. So the, the question becomes, okay... Um, when? When? When will this happen? You know, when is Jesus coming back? When is he going to split the sky open and, and, and the trumpet's going to sound? When is he going to call the church up? When are the dead going to come up out of the graves? 
<clears throat> now, there are many different camps, very distinctive camps. And by the end of this little bit, you're going to know exactly where I stand. You're not going to have any doubt as to where I stand in this. And if you don't agree with me in this, that's okay. You're allowed to be wrong. Um, <laughs> there are three distinctive camps, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation, with a subgroup called the pre-wrath mid-tribulation. And there are those in that, 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 you know, that last group, the pre-wraths, are probably the fastest growing segment in the modern church. I just found a church here in town that uh, is 1611 King James only, but they're, they're pre-wrath. They're mid-trib, and I'm going, I don't get that. If you're, you know, if you're an IFB guy, if you're that independent, fundamental, Bible-believing guy, usually you're pre-trib, but this group is pre-wrath, and we'll tell you about that in a second. Um, but I, I, I believe the Bible teaches just one truth, and that is Jesus is going to return in the air to take up his church before the tribulation happens. In fact, the rapture of the church is the first, occur, the first act that ushers in the, tra- the tribulation, the seven years of Jacob's trouble. Um, so let's define a couple things. Tribulation, some of you are sitting there going, what's tribulation? Right? The tribulation is a seven-year period at the end of all things when God is going to execute final judgment on the world's system of belief. He's going to execute final judgment on Satan, on Satan's followers. And for the final time, God's going to deal with Israel and finish his covenant with Israel. When he gave Abraham the vision of the calf cut in half, and God walked between the halves of the calf, God basically was telling Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation, and I am going to bless your children and your grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, and I am going to finish what I started with you, and if I don't finish it, you get to do to me what I just did to this calf. That was the vision. And God said, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to go back on this covenant that I made with you. And so the tribulation is all about the Jew. It's all about God finishing his work with Abraham's seed, Abraham's physical seed, not his spiritual seed, his physical seed. And so the tribulation is that time. Pre-tribulation, rapture is the position that Jesus will return before that tribulation starts, before the Antichrist comes on the scene. Pop, people run around all the time going, who do you think the Antichrist is? Right? Ah, I think he's, I think, who was the guy back in the late 90s, early 10s, the Prime Minister of England? Tony Blair. There are all kinds of people thinking Tony Blair was the Antichrist. You know, people thought Obama was the Antichrist. People thought Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because Ronald Wilson Reagan, each word has six letters in it, so 666, he had to be the Antichrist, right? <laughs> King Juan Carlos of Spain was the Antichrist for about 20, 30 years. I mean, everybody was convinced he was it, you know. Um, you know and people ask me, well, who do you think is going to? I don't, I don't care who it is because I'm not going to be here when he comes on the scene. I mean, he's on the scene now. I, I believe that we're at the end of the end of the end, that, that, that the, this is all going to happen in my lifetime. I really do believe that. Um, and so I believe that the Antichrist is somewhere between 30 and 70 years old right now. He's alive and well, and he's, a, he's a, either a world leader or positioned to be a world leader, and he's coming on the scene. I don't care who he is because I'm going to be gone when he shows up. <laughs> as soon as I'm gone, he shows up, you know? Um, and so uh, there, there's, there's the pre-trib set, uh, uh, position, then there's the mid-trib and the pre-wrath position, which is, believes that the rapture will happen in three and a half years into the tribulation, when the Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel and walks into the temple and declares himself to be God, 
that that's when the rapture is going to happen. Um, and pre-rathers use that position to push the judgments back to fit into just the last three and a half years of the tribulation. problem is there's judgments before that. If you take Revelation the way it's written, there's judgments before that happens. Um, and then there's the post-trib group that don't even believe in a rapture, but uh, combine the catching away of the church with the second coming for judgment, believes it all happens at the same time. So what happens? It says, it says in verse 15, uh, we're not going to prevent them to sleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump or the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So who's coming to get us? Well, as plain as, plain as it can get right here, the Lord's coming to get us. Jesus Christ is coming back. And that's an important doctrine for a lot of people perverted that doctrine today. You know, the Catholic Church says that Mary's coming back with Jesus to rapture us out. The Mormon Church says Joseph Smith is going to be at his right hand coming back with him to rapture us out. The New Agers say that it's just going to be angels coming to get us. You know, so, but the Bible says it's Jesus. Jesus himself. And why would he come himself? Because it shows the very different worldviews of God and the true way to God. The world thinks God is an angry deity who punishes man and puts him under his thumb. But Christians know, and Jesus shows us, that God is a loving creator who readily forgives those who trust his son and has a personal interest in the affairs of men. God's actually interested in you. You know, I, I've, I was telling somebody earlier this week, you know, you've got to remember this. Jesus is always thinking about you. There's never a moment that goes by any day where Jesus is not thinking about you. You say, how can he do that? There's so many people in the world. He's God. <laughs> he can do this. <laughs> he can give you personal attention while he's giving me personal attention, while he's giving 10,000 people on the continent of India personal attention. And then a couple million in China, and then a couple hundred thousand wherever else. I mean, he can do this. He can have personal conversations with every one of us on this planet at the same time because he's God. And he's very, very, very personally interested in you and me. And so who's coming back? Jesus is coming back. What happens when Jesus comes back? There's a lot of noise. Look at this. He comes back from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. So not only is Jesus shouting, the archangels are shouting, and a trumpet's blaring. Shouting in the biblical sense is a war-like cry. Jesus is coming back with a war shout, with a yell, to call his people back home to prepare for battle. That's exactly what's happening. Shouting at signals in ancient times the start of combat. It's a symbol of a tribe or a leader's confidence in victory. Who saw Braveheart? You know, after they showed their backsides to the English, what did the, what did the uh, Scots do? They screamed at the top of their lungs and they started running as fast as they could towards the English, didn't they? But they screamed first, they shouted first, they had a war cry, right? Y'all got a war cry? They still do that? They still make you have a war cry? Don't, 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 don't give it to me tonight. But, you know, that's why he comes out with a shout. 
That's why he comes out with the angels shouting. That's why he comes out with a trumpet. Since God has all power and all strength, it'd be easy to assume that even a whisper from him would sound like a shout to man, though, right? Can you imagine if God actually shouts? You know, Jeremiah 25, 30 says, The Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He will give a shout, and they that tread the grapes, uh, uh, as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The picture there is that the shout of God is going to cause such destruction. It's like people stomping grapes. And you can go to Revelation chapter 19 and see how when Jesus shouts at the end, when he comes back to step on the earth and he shouts, the people are trampled on the field, battlefield of Megiddo. And the blood on that battlefield, which is a mile square pretty much, is as high as a horse's bridle. And that's your wonderful friend Jesus. You know, that's the kind, loving Jesus that wouldn't hurt a fly. Got news for you. He's not who you think he is. He's a mighty warrior. The angry God of the Old Testament that Andy Stanley and the rest like to talk about, same God as the loving, gentle Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Same guy. You know? I mean, I'm like super gentle with JoJo. I just, I treat her with kid gloves. I love her. She runs in, calls me Papa. I hug her. I give her kisses. And I'm just really, really gentle with her. Right? It was never like that with Luke. (laughs) <laughs> we beat on each other all the time right all the time and yeah yeah he told a doctor that one time yeah my dad punches me I was like great now I got social services after me. Yeah. I was trying to toughen him up you know he did get to a point when he was about 12 years old where he had me and I just had to look him in the eye and say I'm going to win this but you're going to hurt so you have to decide do you really want to try this you know but the, a guy who's, who can fight in a battle, the, 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 the Irish had a saying, never give a man a sword who can't dance. Yeah. Right? Why? You never put a man into a battle who doesn't know how to live. If a man doesn't know how to live and he doesn't know how to have joy and he doesn't know how to, how to be gentle and, and, and loving and kind, he has no business fighting a war because he doesn't have anything to fight for. So it's the same God. All right. He's just he, he can be violent because he's God. He wants to be. Um, OK, so what's he going to shout? That's the question. All right. So hold your place in First Thessalonians and flip over to Revelation chapter four. It's really neat because the Bible actually tells us what he's going to shout. First Thessalonians four says that he's going to shout. Revelation chapter four tells us what he shouts. Now, the book of Revelation. Um, and I'm getting ahead of myself. If you believe the Bible is literally true, you have to believe, in my opinion, that the book of Revelation is written chronologically. With the exception of a, of a small parenthetical section in chapter 11, Revelation is, is absolutely in line, in order. Okay? So it starts with the things that are, chapter 1, Paul, John telling us what he sees, What's going on here? I'm on the island of Patmos, and I had this vision. And then it tells us about the things which, uh, the, the, the things that were, he was on the island of Patmos. The things that are, chapters 2 and 3, the church age, 
And then we get chapter 4, and we, cut, we get into the third section of Revelation, which is the things which will, shall be hereafter. And look at chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet talking to me, which said, Come up hither, and I'll show you the things which must be hereafter. Here's, that's what jo, this is what Jesus says when he comes back. This is what he shouts. Come up. Let's go. Time to go home. Right? Remember when mom would open the door and scream out, get in here. Right? It's time. You, you've been playing long enough. It's time to wash your face, wash your hands. It's dinner time. Guess what? When Jesus calls us up, what's the first thing we do when we get to heaven? We have dinner. Yeah, marriage supper of the lamb. All right? So he's calling us up. But it says that he's got, he, it says, you can go back to First Thessalonians 4. It says that he shouts, and then it says there's the voice of the archangel. Well, who is this archangel? Well, Michael's the only one who's actually called an archangel in the scriptures. But Daniel 10.13 says he is one of the chief princes, which indicates there may be more than one archangel. The only other angels that are named in scripture are Lucifer and Gabriel. Okay, we don't have the names of any other ones. Angels are God's messengers, so it reasons that they'll be there when he takes the bride up and that they'll be shouting just as well as Jesus. And then there's a third noise, the trumpet, with the trumpet of God. Trumpets, again, are used to announce the beginning or ending of something. Y'all remember this. Every morning, revelry. Every evening, taps. Right? The beginning and ending of the day. That's what a trumpet's for. It's to announce the beginning or the ending of something. When the law was given, a trumpet sounded from God's holy mountain. Exodus chapter 20 and 18. And all the people saw thunderings and lightnings and the noise of a trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it far off, they removed. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood far off. Because God was giving Moses the law. This is the beginning of a whole new dispensation of God. And the law was about to become a, a thing. So a trumpet sounded. Trumpets are used to announce the beginning of something. Trumpets are used to announce the coming victory. Joshua 6.20. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And it came to pass that when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout, that the wall of Jericho fell down flat. And then people walked right into the city. And archaeological evidence has shown us, point absolutely true, that the walls of Jericho fell flat straight down into the ground. They didn't fall out. They didn't fall in. They went straight down into the ground. Absolutely impossible to happen, but it happened. Why? Because the people shouted and a trumpet was sounded. God said, you, do, you walk around a city seven times, shout and blow the trumpets, and the wall fall down. And guess what? It did. So there's going to be the sound of the Lord, the sound of the angels, the sound of the trumpet. Who's going to hear these noises? Who's going to hear these noises? Well, some say that only the redeemed will hear the noise, and some say everybody. doesn't matter. Because there's going to be a lot of noise. All right? You know? If you watch the left and behind movies, you know, all of a sudden the people who were saved went, and then they're gone. You know? They, <laughs> they kind of looked up, and then they were gone. And for some reason, all their clothes were folded in the seat they were sitting in. I, I never understood that part, that part you know? Did, did, did you remember? Did you see the movie? The people that, that were raptured in the plane, their clothes were folded, sitting on their chairs. I, don't, I never got that. I, I'm not taking time to fold my clothes. All right? When I'm raptured, I'm going. I don't care. You know, I got a whole new, I got a brand new robe that I'm going to wear when I get there, you know. But, uh, but the, 
the, whoever hears the noises doesn't matter to be a lot of noise. And then the dead rise. The dead rise. Now, how will our bodies resurrect if they've rotted? Well, I'll go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 35. First Corinthians fifteen thirty-five. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, made alive, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain, it may have chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it has pleased him, so that every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men. And he goes on and on. Here's the point, okay? You put a kernel of corn in the ground. That kernel of corn dies. The husk breaks open. The water and minerals from the ground seep into it, and it comes back to life, and it sprouts and it becomes a stalk of corn with several ears of corn on it with hundreds of kernels. In the same way, our bodies go into the ground and they die. And out of that comes out a brand new body. You know? And people say, well, what about the people who were cremated? God knows where all the molecules are. What about the people who died at sea and were eaten by all kinds of different fish? God knows, God knows where every, D, every strain of DNA is, all right? It's, it even says in Revelation that the sea is going to give up its dead, all right? So God knows where it's all at, you know? I, I really don't care what you do with my body after I'm dead. doesn't matter to me. I know God's going to bring it all back together and make it better, and I'll have a much slimmer waistline, and, you know, <laughs> and I'll probably have black hair again and more of it, you know, um, but... Uh, maybe not. Maybe I'll have gray hair. But Jesus has white hair now, according to Revelation 1. So um, maybe we'll all have white hair in heaven. That'd be cool. I'd like that. Wouldn't it be cool if our perfect bodies were pear-shaped? That'd be awesome, you know? That'd be so cool. All you guys with the six-pack abs and everything, you did all that work for nothing. <laughs> and you get to heaven, and you got a 44 waist, and there's nothing you can do about it. And you're stuck with it for eternity. Oh, I hope that's true. <laughs> but our bodies are seeds, the same material, different form. You know, for example, Jesus Christ was beaten so badly before his crucifixion that he didn't even look like a human being. Okay? When Mary is looking at him on the cross and he says, woman, behold your son, what he's actually saying to her is, it's me. It's actually me. I think Mary's sitting there going, looking at it going, that's not my son. That doesn't look anything like him. Because those cat and eye tails were wrapped around his body. They didn't just hit his back. Have you, ever seen, have you ever seen somebody actually hit with a cat and eye tails? Okay? Nine strands of, of, of uh, leather and pieces of broken bone and glass and ceramics tied to the ends. It would wrap around the body, dig in, and then they would pull it, ripping flesh. I mean, you could see his ribs. His intestines were hanging out. It would pull his mouth apart, I'm sure. I, I, I think he was beaten so badly he didn't even look like a human being. And yet when he walked out of the tomb, all he had were five scars. Two hands, two feet, and one side. That's all he had. He was a brand new person. We're going to have brand new bodies. Okay? And then we're going to be carried 
into the clouds. Look at verse uh, 16, 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is the living church of God. This is when the church finally becomes the church triumphant. I don't use the phrase universal church. I hate that phrase because um, it, it, it gives people way too much liberty. <laughs> I think that the church right now is individual, local, independent churches. That's just me. I believe in the local independent church. One day, we will be the church triumphant, and everybody will get their doctrine straight, and everybody will be one body, and we'll be the church. Amen? Amen. We'll, we'll be one body in Christ. We'll, we'll, you know, we are the one body in Christ. I, I'm not saying we're not. But, you know, to, to, to claim the universal church now, exists now, opens us up to a whole lot of doctrinal error. We've got to be careful with that. But there's coming a day when we will all be the one church. And the Bible teaches that many believers will be alive when Christ returns. A lot of people are going to be alive when Christ returns. And um, so how, how's, how's that going to be? I mean, you know, we've, we've had examples of resurrection in the Bible. Jesus, Lazarus, the widow's son, you know. And there's an examples in the Bible of people being carried up to heaven without dying. Elijah, Enoch, right? Christ ascending on the Mount of Olive in Acts chapter 1. And so these are all pictures for us to show us what's going to happen. The dead in Christ are going to rise. The, the living in Christ are going to be lifted up in the air. We're going to be caught up, harpazo, caught up together in the air. And harpazo has several different meanings, and they're all relevant to us. It can mean to catch away speedily. It's the same word used in Acts 8.39, which hopefully is in your Bible, um, where... Um, Philip is suddenly transported away fast, quickly. Um, so it'll be quick. First, Thessalon First Corinthians 15, 51, 52 says it's in the twinkling of an eye, millisecond. That's how fast it happens. Harpazo also means to seize by force. It's used in John 6, 15 when uh, Jesus goes away because he knows the, uh, the Jews may come to take him by force and make him king. So he runs. It's not his time to be, to be made king. Um, and that makes me wonder, you know, some were dragged away by force. Does that mean like lots, some of us may have to be dragged away from our beloved earth, from this beloved world, that our hearts are really actually with the world more than it is with God? My friend Rick Vi tells a story, and I'll end with this because I'm running really long here. Uh, my friend Rick Vi tells a story about the rapture, an illustration. He said one time, he, at one point, Rick had five teenagers in his home. God bless him. He's still alive, amazingly. But at one point, he had five living teenagers in his home. And his wife went away to a ladies' conference for the week, for like three days, for a weekend. She was coming back Sunday afternoon. And so she's gone, and he's got control of the house and the kids and everything. And, uh, you know, I think he said about Friday, he said to the kids, this place has got to be cleaned up. Mama's coming Sunday. They never got it cleaned up. Saturday, we're going to get this done. He says, but we had to go to a baseball game. We had this and everything. He says, Sunday morning, well, we got to go to church. And he's like, after church, we get home, and I say, okay, we got to get this place clean, but there's a game on. And he says, and suddenly we hear ding dong, and it's my wife at the door. And he said, at that moment, I had two competing emotions flood over my heart. One, I was so excited that my lover, 
my, my, my woman, the lover of my soul, the one I longed for was finally here. And at the same time, I was so embarrassed at the condition of my house for her to see me. And he says, is that going to be us at the rapture? Two competing emotions. One, we're so excited that our king's finally here and we get to see him. But at the same time, are we going to be embarrassed at the state of our house when he comes? Thank you for joining us for Field Notes. If you have been blessed by the preaching and teaching you have heard, consider visiting our website at militaryfellowshipministry.com and click the Donate button. Any amount will be a great help to us as we continue to reach our men and women in the military with the gospel. Join us next week as we continue our study of God's Word. God bless you.